singing well. And I know that is a blessing as we sing one to another and sing to the Lord. And next Lord's Day, when Pastor Laramie is out of town, and I'm standing up here waving my arms, acting like I know what I'm doing, I'm going to remember how well you sang today and expect you to sing that well next Lord's Day, all right? This morning we begin a new sermon series through the book of Galatians. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Galatians. If you need to use the Pew Bible provided there before you, you should find it on page 942. The book of Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom. It's been called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. It's been called the Battle Cry of the Reformation. It answers some very important questions that all Christians need to understand. Are we saved by the law or are we saved by grace? Are we saved by our good works or are we saved by the gospel? One preacher has summarized the book in this way. Pastor John MacArthur says the primary message of this book of Galatians is freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from judgment, freedom from hell, freedom from all forms of spiritual bondage and liberation into the glorious purposes and grace of God. About 20 times in this short epistle of six chapters, we'll come across some form of the word bondage or freedom. It's a book all about spiritual freedom, and that's relevant for every generation, every church from the churches of Galatia down to our church today. This book is vitally important in the life of the Christian. And Paul gives us a preview of the whole book right here in the introduction, verses 1 through 5. So if you found your place in God's Word, would you stand for the reading of the Scriptures? Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this 2,000-year-old letter is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would you open now our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin a new study through a book of the Bible, it's always a good opportunity to pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why do we not just jump around and, and preach whatever comes to the pastor's mind during the week? Isn't the pastor supposed to be full of dreams and visions, and he's supposed to just tell you what the Lord has laid on his heart during the week? Well, what God has laid on any pastor's heart should be the preaching of God's Word. It's to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And when we go through God's Word, book by book, line by line, we understand what God is saying and we don't leave anything out. When we come to a passage like the first five verses of Galatians, if we were jumping around, we would probably never land on this passage. We would say, oh, we, we know this. It's just the same old greeting. What, what can we learn from something that we've heard time and time before? This passage would be a prime candidate to get skipped. And yet Paul gives us 
a, an overview of the entire book here in these first five verses, and we're reminded of the glorious gospel that he's going to preach over and over throughout Galatians. So this morning, if you wanted a title for the message, it's not very original, but it gets the point across. This morning, we're going to see the man and his message. The man and his message. The first two verses will remind us of Paul the man. Who is he? And verses 3 through 5 will tell us about his message. What is he going to say to us today and all throughout our study of the book of Galatians? He begins with that simple introduction, Paul, an apostle. You see that there in verse 1. And again, we're familiar with that, and if we uh, weren't intentional, we would just run right past the fact that Paul is an apostle. But we need to clarify a few things in our mind. All uh, apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. When we go through the Gospels and we see Jesus and the 12 who are with him, and we see the other crowds who are going with him and the other followers of Jesus, we see that Jesus had many disciples in the Gospels, but he had 12 apostles. He set apart a specific group of 12, and he called them apostles. Now, there were other times on, on rare occasions he might refer to someone else as an apostle, but as you go through the Gospels and then you go through the book of Acts, you see that this is a very unique group, a very specific group, and in fact, they are a group with qualifications. Now, the basic word for apostle would mean someone who's sent out with the authority of the person who sent them. So you might think of them as being an ambassador, an ambassador plus. They're carrying and going in the authority of the one who sent them. But when it comes to the beginning of the book of Acts, and you remember after Judas's betrayal and the Lord's resurrection and his ascension, he goes into heaven and Peter leads the other 10 remaining apostles to fill that 12th spot. It's important for them to have the number that Christ assigned. And so you get some qualifications there in Acts chapter 1. For someone to be an apostle, that means they must have followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. There are no latecomers. They had to have been there with him every step of the way. And they had to have seen Jesus in his resurrection. And what's more, they must have experienced a face-to-face, -face, personal, just like you and me standing here, a personal call from Jesus Christ to be an apostle. You see that all in Acts chapter 1. And there were a few people in that day who met those qualifications. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said there were over 500 witnesses who were still alive, who saw the Lord in his resurrection. And then you narrow that down to the ones who uh, were with him throughout all three years of his earthly ministry. And when it comes to Acts 1, you have two men that they are choosing between, and they basically say either one of them would be fine. And so the Lord works through a unique process where they cast lots to choose and see which one will fill that 12th spot, uh, a method of, of choosing that we don't see again any other time in the New Testament. And so it's not given to us as the church today to make decisions by casting lots, but they settle on that man, Matthias. So with all that in mind, you understand an apostle, yes, it's someone who's sent out with the authority of the one who sent them. And we uh, might think, well, Christ sends us out, so can't we use that word apostle? No. Because you understand there's a specific qualifications. None of us have seen the Lord in his resurrection. None of us were with him for those three years of his earthly ministry. And while the Lord does call us and save us, he doesn't do it the same way he did with the 12 and not the same way that he did face to face with Paul on the Damascus Road. So with all that in mind, I want to warn you about anyone today who would call themselves an apostle. You see this sometimes. Perhaps people do it with good intentions. Uh, some people would make the argument and say, well, missionaries, that's really the idea. They're being sent out, and so they might call a missionary an apostle. 
I understand what they're saying, but I don't think it's wise to do that. But there are other people who are saying, no, we're, we're in the line of the apostles. It's just been passed down to us. We carry the same authority as the 12 and as Paul does. You see that in the New Apostolic Reformation, a group that I hope you're not familiar with. But if you are, you need to understand that they're false teachers. They're saying that they are carrying on in the same way that the apostles did. It was a movement that was started in the 60s by someone named Peter Wagner and a, a modern person that you might be more familiar with today who is part of this new apostolic reformation is Paula White. She was a spiritual advisor. I put quotations around that. She was a spiritual advisor to President Trump, and she's a false teacher. She's part of this new apostolic reformation. They would say that uh, the gifts of being an apostle, that continues even until this day. That's on one extreme. On the other extreme, you have the Roman Catholic Church who would say, hey, we are the church, we were over the apostles, and so we passed down that apostolic authority through the church, through the popes, through the declarations of the popes. On either side, they're both out, out of step with the scriptures, all right? So we understand that an apostle is someone who has specific qualifications, and Paul, right out of the gate, is claiming to be one of these men with these specific qualifications. Well, we're going to keep going. We're going to see, does Paul meet these qualifications? Should he be considered uh, an apostle? Well, you think about what we said. Did he see Jesus in his earthly ministry? Not that we know of. Did he see the Lord in his resurrection? Yes, he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. Did he experience a direct call from Jesus Christ? Yes. If you've been reading along with us in our McShane Bible reading plan and you've been working through that, if you're behind, that's okay. It happens. Today's a great afternoon to get caught up. But if you've been doing that, then yesterday you would have finished reading through the book of Acts. And did you notice how many times in the book of Acts Paul gives his testimony? Yes, we read about it in Acts chapter 9 when it happens, but every time Paul gets arrested and he's put before Jewish councils, Jewish leaders, Roman leaders, he starts telling them how he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. Because Paul recognizes, he says in 1 Corinthians, look, I'm like someone who was born late. I'm a latecomer to this game. I wasn't with the Lord in his earthly ministry, but I saw him in his resurrection, and he's called me to be an apostle. And he keeps repeating that over and over, making clear to people that he truly is an apostle, not by choice, but by the will of God. Paul's apostolic authority is challenged in many places in the New Testament, but it's especially challenged in the book of Galatians. And so we're going to see him hammer that out. He's going to hammer it home throughout chapters 1 and 2. Why would he do that? Because it's being challenged. Now, we're going to jump out of order for just a second. I want you to think about who he's writing this letter to. At the end of verse 2, he says he's writing to the churches of Galatia. And that's in the plural. It's more than one church. And it's not a city named Galatia. It's a region named Galatia. And you may have no idea in the world where that would be on the map. It's in modern Turkey. But you've met these churches because we went with Paul on his journey last week. His first missionary journey was through this region of Galatia. So all those churches that we saw Paul and Barnabas uh, visiting and starting and preaching the gospel to last Lord's Day, that's where he's at. He's writing these letter, this letter to the churches of Galatia. And what seems to have happened, you remember as we saw last week, he didn't have a lot of time in every town. And so he was there, he and Barnabas preached. Sometimes they had a little bit longer, but usually they were run out of town on the rail. And so they had to get out of there. And as soon as Paul left, other Jewish teachers came in, other troublemakers, other fanatics, and they preached a different gospel than Paul 
preached. We call these troublemakers, these Jewish fanatics, we call them Judaizers. We're not going to find that name in the book of Galatians, but it's what we call them in biblical studies because they were forcing people back to the Jewish way of salvation, to keeping the law. If you want to keep notes here, we're going to see things about them along the way, but here's just a few references. In Galatians 1 verse 7, Paul says they distort the gospel. In chapter 3 verse 11, he says that they claim a sinner is justified before God by the law. In chapter 4, verse 10, these troublemakers demand observance of Old Testament days and months and seasons and years for salvation. And in chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, these fanatics teach that circumcision is required for salvation. I hope you understand the trouble with what they're saying. Paul says from the beginning they're distorting the gospel. They're saying you've got to be saved all these different ways. You've got to keep the law. Men, you've got to be circumcised. All people, you've got to keep certain days on the calendar to be a good, faithful Jew. You want to follow God? You want to be a Christian? You've got to be a good Jew. That's what they are teaching. They're troublemakers. They're fanatics. And they came in as soon as Paul left town, and they started stirring up everything that he had taught. They started undermining everything that he had said. And so he's making clear from the beginning he is an apostle, even though his authority is being challenged. Now, as you understand, we've got the book of Galatians. We've got what Paul wrote. We don't have what they were saying, but we can put it together. We can begin to figure out here's what's going on and what are some ways they might have challenged Paul. Well, one way was they were just downright mean and they picked on his appearance. All right? Many times you see in Paul's letters he makes some reference uh, to that he's not impressive in appearance. In fact, his name, Paul, I hate to break it to you, but literally it means small. That's what Paul's name means, is small. And while we're not given a great physical description of him in the New Testament, within just a couple of centuries after all of this happened, we do have a record of someone saying, this is what Paul looked like. They said that uh, Paul was a man of small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, and a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. I can sympathize with his unibrow, but otherwise, Paul is not very impressive to look at. And so that's what they're saying. They're coming in, look at this guy. What about that small apostle, that small man named Paul? You think he's the one who's supposed to be an apostle? He certainly wasn't one of the 12. He used to kill you people, and now you expect that he's telling you the truth? Give me a break. Don't listen to that little Paul. He, the Judaizers would say, look, after all, we're being consistent. We're taking the law of Moses, and we're telling you this is how you must be saved. But Paul is a little guy, and he has a little message. Well, Paul makes clear right out of the gate, back in verse 1, that he's an apostle, but his authority doesn't come from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see, Paul didn't receive his authority from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council there in Jerusalem. He didn't receive his authority from the 12 apostles, even though they did affirm his ministry. And we saw last week the church at Antioch commissioned Paul. They set Paul apart for ministry, but even they couldn't make him an apostle. No, his authority is not from men, but nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul sets all of mankind over here on one side, and he says, look, my authority doesn't come from any of them. And he puts God on the other side, and he says, Jesus is on God's side. He says, I got my authority from them, not from mankind. Now, Paul certainly is not denying the fact that Jesus is the God-man. 
He's not denying the humanity of Jesus. He's going to emphasize that later in the book. But here, right from the beginning, he's emphasizing that Jesus is God. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another Jewish teacher that they could choose to ignore. That's how the Judaizers would have described Jesus. He's just another teacher. They would say, we've got a better message, a better doctrine than he does. Now for us, 2,000 years later, we recognize that all Christians, we must affirm that Jesus is God. We must do that to be within the faith. But don't miss how explosive this claim is. We get so used to it, we might miss what Paul is saying here. This is probably one of his first letters written within just a couple of decades after the Lord's resurrection. And three times in this passage, Paul refers to God as Father, and then he links Jesus with God. Without qualification or hesitation, he's saying that that Jewish carpenter who lived just a couple of decades ago actually, truly was God. I love the way that a man named Timothy George expresses this idea. He says, Paul was saying that the life and work of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, transcends the bounds of all human categories of rabbi and prophet and guru, miracle worker, religious genius, philosopher, and statesman. When we consider who he was and what he did, we can only say that this one, Jesus, is God, the eternal Son of God, who freely came to earth to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. He came into the very thick of our humanity, as bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. But God has vindicated his shameful death on the cross by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the right hand in heaven. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, now worthy to be worshipped and glorified by all who are his. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ is God. And Paul got his authority not from man, but from God. He says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Well, what did God the Father do to authenticate the authority of the Son? Look at that next phrase. He raised him from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Christ is an essential component of the gospel. The gospel that Paul is going to expound all throughout this letter. But if you want the one fact that distinguishes Jesus Christ from every other religious teacher throughout history, it is this. God has raised Jesus from the dead. No other religious teacher can say that. No other fanatic, uh, no other priest or teacher can say that. Jesus died, but he lives today and he lives forevermore. Every other teacher throughout, throughout history that has died still lies decaying in their grave. But God has raised Jesus from the dead. Paul, an apostle, not from men but nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and, verse 2, all the brothers who are with me. When you come to this idea of the brothers with him, there's a distinction and an association. A distinction and an association. There's a distinction because Paul doesn't say there are other apostles with me. He says there are brothers with me. He's distinguishing himself. He's not quite the same as they are. He is in this elite group of being an apostle. That's a distinction, but there's also a close association. While he's in an elite group of apostles, he's not isolating himself. Paul needs the fellowship of these other believers. 
You see, the Christian life is not designed to live in isolation. There's a fellowship that we're going to see in the book of Galatians that's going to be demonstrated most naturally through the local church. Paul is with these other brothers, and they've seen his ministry, and they affirm that he truly is an apostle. So here's the nutshell. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I was commissioned by God the Father, and these fanatics cannot say that. He says, I was set apart and sent out by Jesus Christ himself, and these religious fanatics cannot say that. He says, I am affirmed by these godly brothers in ministry, and these fanatics cannot say that. Paul is reminding the Galatians right from the beginning that their ministry, his ministry, is altogether different from these troublemaking, fanatic Judaizers. Now listen, I understand. That may sound like a big history lesson to many of you. You may not give a rip whether Paul has any authority at all. Because let's be honest, for many people today, it's not the authority of one man, Paul, that they reject. It's the authority of the Scriptures that they reject. We live in a world that rejects authority, and even many so-called churches reject the authority of Scripture. We'll see this and discuss this more and more throughout the book but some of you need to come to terms with the fact that it's not Paul's authority that you're worried about. It's the Scripture's authority. It's God's authority over your life. God has spoken, and he's spoken finally, ultimately, clearly, and thoroughly through his word. So here's the point. If Paul is an apostle sent by Jesus Christ, he carries the same authority of Jesus Christ, and we cannot reject his message. It's not optional. If your attitude is, I love Jesus, but I got a beef with Paul, you need to repent and read the scriptures. That's been the message of the radical feminist movement for decades. Jesus we love, but Paul we can't abide. Jesus is wonderful, but Paul is a male chauvinist pig. Have you ever heard that? There are many people who would say that, even people who would position themselves as biblical teachers. No, God is speaking through Paul. The words that we have recorded in Scripture are God's words, and they are not optional. The New Testament is not a buffet where you can pick and choose what you want. It's all or nothing. This is the man, Paul the Apostle. But what about his message here in verses 3 through 5? Paul has a simple greeting here in these next three verses but don't underestimate their significance. Paul gives us, again, a preview of the whole letter right here in these verses, and he begins with that familiar greeting in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're starting to notice as you read the Scriptures, as you read the New Testament letters, that this is a common Christian greeting that's present in almost every one of those letters. It's a wonderful Christian expression that summarizes the whole gospel right there in one greeting. I know it's strange to some of you. You may not be used to hearing Christians greet one another this way. When Pastor Laramie and I greet you at the beginning of the service with that, some of you still look at us like a mule looking at a new gate. It's okay. I hope you're beginning to see it's biblical. It's right here, and it's a wonderful expression of what Christ has done for us. These are simple words. The powerful words, grace and peace. Grace, the absolutely unmerited, undeserved favor of God 
The love of God poured out on us when we deserve the wrath of God poured out on us. God's goodness and kindness shown to us through Jesus Christ. And it's only through this grace that we can receive the peace of God, the peace with God himself, peace within ourselves, peace with one another. This is only possible because of the grace of God. And this greeting, as, as you understand, we believe it's appropriate for all Christians at all times. But it does bear significance for the Galatian church. Why might, might that be? Why would Paul write these specific words of greeting to these Christians? Well, there's a pastor named John Chrysostom. He lived almost 17, 1800 years ago. You might think, why in the world would you read anything from somebody who lived that long ago if it's not the Bible? Well, John Chrysostom was the original Adrian Rogers because he was an expository preacher and he was referred to as old golden throat. And here's what Chrysostom said about this phrase. Here's why it matters that Paul is saying this to these Galatian churches. Chrysostom writes, for since they were in danger of falling from grace, he prays that they might recover it again. And since they had become at war with God, he beseeches God to restore them to the same peace. You see, it's not just a common old greeting that we can run past. When Paul says grace to you and peace, he's reminding them of what God has done for them and that they should not abandon this grace and peace. In those three little words, Paul saying grace to you, he's letting them know, here's what I'm about to talk to you about throughout this whole letter. Because this is the very point that these false teachers, these fanatics were challenging them on. It's on the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not by works that we've been saved. And the Galatians understood that at the beginning, but they're beginning to wander away. And we today, we, we understand this. We, we recognize God's grace. We, we sing about God's grace. But too often we neglect His grace to us. How did God show His grace to us? Look at verse 4. He gave Himself for our sins. So much, so much importance, so much truth there in those five words. Gave himself for our sins. It's a reminder of a truth that the world hates, that we are indeed sinners. Our sins are not just little mistakes. They're not just little whoopsies that we can gloss over. They're not just something that we can brush under the rug. Our sins are so heinous there is such great treason against a holy God that the only way our sins could ever be made right is for the very Son of God to come to earth and die in our place. And that's exactly what God tells us he did, that Jesus gave himself for our sins. He came as our substitute. He died in our place. That should have been us dying on the cross. We deserve death for our sins, but Christ took our place. That one sentence that Paul gives wins the argument. If he stopped right there, he would already have defeated these Galatian fanatics because, as one man has said, his uh, sentence here thunders down like a sledgehammer to crack the foundation of the fanatics' theology because they're teaching it's Jesus plus this. It's Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus the law. And God says, Paul says here, that no, Jesus gave himself for our sins. This is the truth of the gospel. But there's more. It's even more wonderful because it says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Christ has delivered us. 
Luke uses this word uh, several times in the book of Acts. He uses it to refer to God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt's bondage. And he refers to Peter being delivered out of jail. And he uses the word saying uh, that Paul himself was delivered from the hands of a lynch mob. You'll read it there in the book of Acts. You understand when you put all this together, you get a picture of what it means to be delivered, to be set free. But another way you could translate this word is to be rescued. To be rescued. Your translation might even say that. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. We all appreciate a good rescue story. In the months after 9-11, there were many uh, dramatic rescue missions there at Ground Zero. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the whole nation is watching as there's rescue missions trying to save as many people as can be found. Some of you remember back in 1987, uh, the rescue mission of baby Jessica as she was trapped down in a well. Uh, she was 18 months old and she was trapped down uh, in, a, in a well there in Texas. And the whole nation was watching, wanting to see this little child be rescued. Back in 2010, the whole world was watching as 33 Chilean miners were trapped about a half a mile under the surface of the earth for over 68 days. And everyone was watching to see if they would be rescued. We appreciate a good rescue story, but there's a far greater rescue mission being told in the scriptures. It's when the Son of God lowered himself, not into the wreckage of Ground Zero, not into the ruin of New Orleans, not into the depths of a mine, but into the depths of our humanity. He lowered himself, taking on human flesh, but not just human flesh. He took the form, the position of a servant, a slave, a slave who willingly served us by dying in our place. That's how Jesus Christ delivers us. That's how he has rescued us. Dear friend, have you been rescued by Jesus Christ? You can't save yourself. And while you may not have a Galatian false teacher coming to you today, there are false teachers on every hand telling you this is the way to salvation. If you'll only do this, then you will be right with God. When the scriptures say, no, Christ has done it all, would you cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ today? Repent and believe upon Christ. He delivers us, not just from our past sins, and he delivers us not just into eternity. We long and look forward to the future, to the sweet by and by. But he delivers us even here in the now and now. What does it say there uh, in the middle of verse 4? He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. How did Jesus do this? By justifying us through faith. That's what we're going to come to understand in the book of Galatians, that he has justified us by faith and he's poured out his spirit upon us so that now all the things that the world will say in this present evil age, those things don't matter so much anymore. Those divisions of Jew and Gentile and male and female and slave and free, while they don't necessarily just go away, they're no longer nearly as important as they are in the world's eyes. What the present evil age says doesn't matter so much when we are in Christ, when we're free in Christ. The old rituals, these old external acts of justification, things that we do to try to save ourselves, like keeping certain feasts and keeping certain days and physical acts like circumcision, those things don't matter when you're in Jesus Christ. So even right here in this greeting, 
Paul is already calling out to these bewitched Galatians, saying, Christ gave himself for your freedom. He's delivered you from the present evil age. Don't be drawn back in. It's in God's grace that he gave himself for our sins. He delivered us. He's given us peace in the midst of the present evil age. That's the only reason that we have peace. That's why we can sing with all of our hearts, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. But it gets even better. Not only has Christ given himself, not only has he delivered himself, but this was all according to the will of our God and Father. Sometimes you'll hear perhaps well-meaning Christians describe the God of the Old Testament as this angry, vengeful ogre in the sky just waiting to zap you if you step out of line. And then in the opening pages of Matthew, here comes sweet, kind, loving Jesus. There's so much that I could say about that wrong understanding of the Scripture. But you understand right here from this passage that this is the Father's will. There's no angry ogre in the sky. This is the will of our God and Father that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us, to rescue us. It was God's will that he would raise him from the dead. When we understand these great truths of the gospel, we don't have to have our emotions manipulated. We can burst out in song, burst out in praise and worship to our king, and we would say with him, to, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the first of many times in the book of Galatians that Paul is going to draw us back to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, some of the things we'll come across in this book, we, at first glance, we're going to think, that doesn't sound like it has anything in the world to do with me today. Until we dig deeper and we understand that the same problems they were facing in their day, we face them in our day, perhaps with just a different name. Perhaps you're like the Galatians. You started out well. You started out in the freedom in Christ. But slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, you're being drawn back in to trying to save yourself. You think that if I just do, if I just do enough, if I serve enough, if I show up enough, if I read my Bible enough, God will love me more. Make no mistake, Paul is going to make clear all of those things are good. Out of the love of our hearts, yes, we want to serve Christ Yes, we want to know him through his word. Yes, we want to be a part of the saints and fellowship, but that does not save us. Perhaps you've flipped to the other side. You think, oh my goodness, I forgot to read my Bible today. God's not going to love me anymore. Oh, dear friends, we have been saved. We have been rescued through Christ, and it is all of God's grace. Don't be drawn back into the law. It's all of God's grace. That is the glorious message of Galatians. And when we understand that, we will certainly give glory to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.